As I told you last time, this is going to be a question and answer session on the three talks that we had on crisis. So any question that you have about these subjects, assault, alcoholism, rape, divorce, death, battered women, any of the things that we've been talking about the last three Sundays, uh, I'll invite you to, to ask. It would be helpful, of course, if you would ask your own question and not what you think someone else might have a question about. If it's something that comes from your own experience, then oftentimes this can be very helpful to someone else. Some of you asked me some questions before the service uh, and asked me to cover these things. So I've, I've forgotten that we have uh, a lot of bashful people uh, that come to the dispensable church. and So this is always a possibility. Whenever we're going to have a question and answer period, if you want to let me know a question, I'll try to cover it. And then those brave souls can then stand up and voice their question. The reading from A Course in Miracles that Gail gave said that eternity does not await for you at the end of time. There's no correlation, in other words, between death and being able to sit down with your father, mother, God. And that brings up one question that someone here asked, and I'm so, so glad that they did because I've heard this question many, many times. I'm so tired of this world I want to get this over with. Why can't I just go ahead and kill myself? Because I can then have a talk with God. And it seems as if that's likely, doesn't it? We know that we're forgiven. And it almost seems rational that possibly there's some way to force the hand of God. To trick God into loving us. But of course, we don't have to trick God into loving us. And we are having a talk with God at this very moment. And we are with the people even who have left at this very moment. It isn't death that opens our eyes to the presence of our loved ones and the presence of our Father, Mother, God. It is opening our eyes that opens our eyes. So let me urge you to please not consider dying as a way of strengthening your perception of the presence of God. This simply will not work. In fact, it will delay you a little bit to do that. There is no horrible condemnation that you have to worry about, but this is not the way to experience eternal life, is to turn to death as an ally. These urges that we have to feel our Father's love for us, to awaken, to put aside this, this nightmare, to have all the cruelty and the backbiting cease, this longing to come home is the highest thought that the ego is capable of. Of course, in Miracles puts it this way. <laughs> 
that the highest thought the ego is capable of is the recognition that there is something more, but it does not know what that something more is. So it is true that this urge that you feel to come home and be one with your brothers and sisters, to be at peace at last, to love and forgive, and to no longer condemn, and no longer be condemned. It is true that that is the highest that the ego is capable of, but that does not come from God. And even that urge, that yearning, will delay you. Even that urge, that yearning, is not your ally. The urge you may feel to have a deep relationship with your children or with your parents, they're still alive. Is the highest that the ego is capable of, but it is, it is not from God. It is not love. It is not your ally. Do not side with it. There is no end to that urge. That urge is a denial made in the present. It is a wish for something that you think you do not have. It is an affirmation that you don't have it. You have it. Gently turn from that urge and spend the time, instead of longing, opening your heart, doing what you know to do, releasing yourself as best you can, forgiving those around you as best you can right now. Heaven is a place where only innocent innocence is seen. That's what heaven means. That we want to see the innocence of all living things. Now is the time to do that. Now, just as you cannot form a deep, deep love with the person that you're living with, if you're living with someone, or with your close friend, close friend that you're not living with, or with any of the people that are immediately around you, just as you cannot form a deep love as long as you are either silently or overtly threatening some form of divorce, some form of separation. So you cannot begin your walk home as long as you play with this idea of suicide. You must lay that aside. You must go ahead and decide, even though you have doubts as to whether or not you can make it, you must say to yourself, I am going to live until the day I die, and I will not die by my own hand. I am putting this thought of killing myself behind me. It is a form of divorce. And likewise, eliminate that hypocrisy from every other part of your life. <clears throat> Be deeply committed to those around you. Do not threaten to leave the people around you. It is all right to leave someone if that seems to be the most peaceful thing. But to threaten to leave someone and to bring up divorce as some sort of weapon, whether you do it verbally or you do it silently to yourself, it's felt. And this undermines the possibility of any love. And for you to threaten God with killing yourself undermines your faith in God. 
of whatever words you use for God. You do not have to threaten or conjole or plead or do anything except open your heart. So make the decision to never, ever again contemplate suicide. You can do that. Act as if the truth is true. Take a stand on this. There is no virtue in this. This is not admirable behavior to tinker around with this. Another question that came uh, before the service was, what did I mean by allowing the world to come to you? And um, when I was growing up, starting at the third grade, I had a wonderful friend whose father used to teach him uh, how to box. He spent a great deal of time teaching him how to fight. And the, the one lesson that he drummed into his mind over and over again was, get in the first blow. Hit him first, even if you have to run, hit him first. His father pointed out that half of all fistfights were won by the person who gets in the first blow. And this, this poor guy had no friends because if there was the slightest argument, if someone looked in his eyes too long, wham, he bloodied their nose right there on the spot. He used to do that to me too, but for some, I, for some reason we, we got past that and we've remained friends all these years. This is actually the ego's position, if you look very closely. You think you've got to get to this task that needs to be done. Here, your mind has been rambling on, and you've suddenly thought of something that needs to be done, or some new way you can protect yourself. And without knowing it, you start running towards it. Because we believe the world is dangerous. Now, the reason I brought this concept up in connection with crisis is that crisis seems to prove that the world is extremely dangerous and we must forever be on our guard. There's only one way for you to understand that this is not a fact. And that is to act as if the world is not dangerous and wait on people to come to you, events and tasks to come to you, to wait for the day to unfold. Now, I can't tell you how to do that, but I can tell you that you probably have some sense of that just in my talking about it. And if you will just begin practicing the sense of it that you have, the sense of everything's okay, I don't have to think about anything, nothing has to be decided in advance, no one is dangerous, and I will simply wait. And then there will be, as I said before, something like this little door opening, and you see, ah, I need to do so-and-so. And very quietly, you get up and do it. It eliminates so many useless, busy tasks that we concern ourselves with. So I can't tell you how to let the world come to you 
All I can do is urge you to practice that, to have a sense of it, and begin developing the sense of it. Every time you find yourself anxiously trying to get at anything, wait a moment. Just pause a second and see if there is not some easy way for you and this task and this event or this person to come together. Another question. Someone said that they were interested in my suggested uh, way of treating yourself with a major addiction. This individual said that he was thinking of stopping going to AA in order to treat himself because this sounded so interesting. He wanted to experiment with this. <clears throat> Remember, I also said that I would not suggest doing this. I only gave that if you must treat yourself and you are not going to go to AA and you want to start doing something, then I made some suggestions as to what you might do. It is true that you can give the ego a little bit of what it wants and quiet it down, but this is extremely difficult to do with a major addiction. And I would not suggest that unless you simply are not going to allow yourself any other alternative at the moment. But, for example, we all know uh, if we try to cut out some food that we've suddenly decided is bad for us, like salt. Let's say that you've decided that salt is bad for you, and you try to cut it out entirely. It's as if there's this scream that starts inside you. <laughs> and now you want to put salt on everything. <laughs> you want to sprinkle it on the parsley and pour it on the cornflakes and everything else. <laughs> Don't do battle with your ego. I'm telling you, there's always a way to not do battle with your ego. There is always a way to walk around whatever the problem seems to be. I promise you that that is always the case. And one little tactic, it's one of many, many, there is no magic to this, is to give yourself a little salt and see if you can't settle the ego down a little bit. To watch a little television. You see, we make all these rules and then we can't abide by them. Go ahead and watch a little television. Monitor yourself if you wish as you sit there watching it. You, right in the middle of the program, you may see, ah, that's all I need. And you get up and turn off the TV set. It's a very interesting phenomenon. So you're treating your ego as if it is a separate entity. Because, in fact, it is. It's not an entity at all. It's a, it's a little image that you've projected. But if you will go ahead and treat it as if it's something autonomous, but yours, your pet, your little pussycat, your little gerbil, <laughs> and the gerbil wants to go around and around on the little wheel, don't sit there and lecture it. <laughs> Don't 
Don't tell it that there are more important things. Let it spin around on the little wheel for a while. I have two more questions, and then we'll, we'll, I'd like for you to bring up anything that you want to. What do I say to people who tell me, oh, you're young, you can have another child after this person's child has died? People are going to say that kind of thing. They'll say that thing after you've had a breakup of your relationship, after you've had a spouse die. They will come up with things that they think somehow are going to make you feel better about the whole thing. Well, uh, I've heard this one. The baby wasn't very old, was it? It was just a few months old, wasn't it? You didn't have time to get attached. You should be grateful that you didn't have time to attach. Or you had 50 very good years, didn't you? Gosh, no one could ask for more than that. In one way or another, maybe not quite that bluntly, people will say things like that. Now, you must understand that the same panic that you feel when you see someone who's just undergone a tragedy overtakes them just as it overtakes you. We don't know what to say to people. We know we can say the wrong thing. And there is no right thing to say to anyone. To say nothing is just what one person wants at a particular time, and another time they may want to talk endlessly about the problem. There's no way you're going to be able to figure that out. It is good to wait in your heart. It is good not to have a sense of rush in your heart. And it is very good for you to forgive other people their transgressions. This will allow you to be more likely to say something that's of true comfort or to not say something if that's what's needed at the moment. So there is nothing to say to someone who blunders into some very insensitive <coughs> sentence about your tragedy. But I can tell you this, it will only prolong your pain to go report this to everyone else and to tell everyone else what this person said. Yes, you'll get their sympathy and they'll nod their heads and so forth. And yes, they will dislike so-and-so <coughs> along with you. They will join you in this. This will not make your pain go away to do this. So just say, well, they made a mistake. They were scared. They were scared. They didn't know what to say to you. They were scared. They wanted to push this thing away from them. And so they said these words. So quickly, quickly forgive them. Don't, tell you, don't try to tell yourself that the words were okay. They weren't okay. Tell yourself that the person was scared and they just made a mistake. And it is not something you wish to dwell on. It will not help you or help the person to dwell on this comment, to dwell on how the in-laws tried to take over the funeral. Let's see. Or the family wouldn't have anything to do with you after this. You, see. And you thought you were so close <coughs> to uh, mother so-and-so, and now her son has divorced you, and she won't talk to you anymore. I know these things hurt. They cut very, very deeply. 
But you see, we have these mixed loyalties. We don't know what we're supposed to do. People really do think that a sign of friendship is to side with one person against another one. And so this person that you've been very, very close to will side with the one who's left you, thinking that this is a form of friendship. Don't dwell on this. Of course it's wrong. Of course it's a mistake. Of course it's insensitive. But they don't know any better. So as best you can, leave it alone. Let it go. Bless them as they go. Surround them with light when they come to your mind. Your ego cannot hold a grievance about any object that you continue to surround in light. If you will pause every time a remark comes to your mind or a behavior on someone's part, or even the tragedy itself, if you will pause and surround it in light, the ego will stop handing you this for your consideration. It does not like light. And the last question someone asked before was about the ninth step in AA. I know many of you are not familiar with the ninth step, and I'm not going to try to get into an exposition on that, but simply let me say what I have said before about the ninth step. If you will look closely at that, there is a qualifying phrase in the ninth step, and therefore you do not have to verbally sit down and tell someone that you're sorry. This is not a kindness to some people. So of course you want to make amends, but use your own intelligence as to how to make an amend, how to make things right. Many people don't want to t for you to tell them that you forgive them, for example. They don't think they did anything wrong. <laughs> And they don't know what to do when you tell them that you're sorry. I'm not speaking of everyone. Of course, there are people that, that can accept that. But lots of people don't know what to do. They panic when you tell them that you're sorry. They don't know what they're supposed to say back. And therefore, it's an attack, you see. The place to make an amend is in your heart. And then let whatever action grow from that peace in your heart. It is peace you want with the other person. And oftentimes, recalling the past and bringing up the past with someone else is not the way to have peace. Sometimes it is. Trust your instinct on this. There is no rigid rule here, even in AA, as to what you are to do. What you are to do is to have peace. What you are to do is to have love. What you are to do is to make other people comfortable. And maybe never mentioning it might be the way to do that with some people. Okay, those are all the questions that I was asked before. So if anyone would like to bring something else up, uh, now's the time to do it. A question concerning how to hold on to the belief that the world is a safe place. If I did say the world is a safe place, that isn't the way I should have worded it. You are in a safe place. 
The world is nothing but pure danger. Everything. <laughs> if you laugh too hard, the seat could come out. If you, if you picked one of those sissy little padded seats, you see, and you laugh too hard, it could drop. This actually happened. <laughs> happened to your minister. <laughs> so anything is a potential danger in the world. <laughs> the truth is that you are in a safe place. You are in a safe place. This implies no behavior. It simply is a fact that you are in a safe place and that the time will come when you will see that nothing can actually hurt you, but it will sure seem to hurt you up until that time. <laughs> So, no behavior is implied here. Do not go down Agua Fria Street if it is not peaceful for you to do so. Do not ask yourself whether or not your fear is rational. This is an endless and useless argument. If you are afraid of something, see if there's some way you can avoid it. You do not want to do battle. When you are ready to walk through a particular fear, you will see that. You will know your strength. You will have a sense of the certainty of the outcome. And then you will begin your walk through this particular fear. So it's not that we never walk through a fear, but in general, almost always it's best to walk around the situation that seems to be frightening. <coughs> because the very fact that it frightens you means you're not ready to handle it yet. And simply doing something physical does not put you in a position to handle this fear. Developing a sense of letting the world come to you does not imply uh, that you go to the uh, self-defense course or that you don't go to it, that you carry a weapon or that you don't carry a weapon, that you only uh, go out during the daytime and never go out at night or that you don't. It implies nothing. Let your decision as to whether or not you go out at night or jog down a particular <coughs> block or have a date with a particular kind of person. Let your sense of peace tell you what, you, what to do. Do not try to reason it out. Do not tell yourself, well, so-and-so is probably very harmless. The very fact that you are asking yourself that question indicates you have some fear about this. And if it is a strong fear... Simply don't go out with so-and-so. Bless them. Try to make uh, your turning down this engagement as, 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 as comfortable for them as you can. But you're not required to do anything except practice the peace of God and to have goodwill and to continue your walk. A Course in Miracles and the other teachings that are coming to this planet at this time are designed to save you time. And you will save enormous time if you will stop all useless battles. Do what is peaceful for you to do. Of course it makes no sense as to why one thing's peaceful and another thing isn't. But don't worry about that. Do what is peaceful for you to do. A question concerning how to deal with children in crisis. How old is she? She's eight. Okay, at eight years old, 
if you're talking about an adolescent, this would be another thing, but an eight-year-old child still identifies with its parents more than it identifies with its own mind. It identifies with the mind of the parent more than it identifies with its own mind. And this will be true decreasingly, but it will be true until the child reaches adolescence. And adolescence isn't an age. Adolescence is a change that we are all familiar with. It can come before what seems to be the normal age, or it can come quite late. I've seen it, and we've all seen that. But with young children, there is really only one thing that you have to do, and that is to bring more peace into your own life. And this will bring peace to the child. A child cannot be afraid unless we are afraid, and we are afraid most of the time. But we are sort of generally afraid. And what happens is that there's some morning you get up and you take in a particular fear without even realizing it. You look in the mirror and you say, it's all hopeless, isn't it? <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it. And so, with, uh, this is, an, oh, you, you weigh or something in the... Suddenly you weigh five more pounds, and this is very depressing. Or you get a phone call from, from your friend who is mad at you once again, and you thought you had this relationship all straightened out. <laughs> now, behind that, of course, is more than just the fact that this friend is mad at you once again. It is this feeling of hopelessness about all relationships, and why can't we be close to people, and why do we do this to each other, you see? But it comes in a specific form. So whenever you find yourself depressed, discouraged, if you will stop and look at your mind, the contents of your mind, very closely, look at the thoughts that have been in your mind in the last few hours, the chances are excellent that you will see you have accepted some sense of reality about this world. Suddenly you have decided that there is something in this world that is in fact a law and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's very depressing to do that about any aspect of the world. So see the thought and then remind yourself of the truth and see if you can't let go of the thought and then act as if the truth is true. Act as if the truth is true. Now, that doesn't mean to drive down Agua Street to act as if that has nothing to do. Agua Street has nothing to do with truth. <laughs> to act as if the truth is true is to stand upright, relax your forehead, to look with calm eyes, to smile inwardly. It's an attitude that will have some reflection like that, perhaps, in your body. But it isn't a manipulation of the body or your behavior that is called for. To act as if the truth is true is to go ahead and trust what you know in your heart. But this doesn't mean that you don't lock your door or anything like that. It means that you lock your door in peace. Because peace is what you now value. Peace is what you now seek. Or, if you decide to leave your door unlocked, you do not think about it. 
You do not ask yourself if that was a mistake. You have decided this, and you act as if what you decide is correct. This is not arrogance. This is just a refusal to worry. Now, another thing that about this uh, business of children and, and, uh, and the disturbances that they feel, speaking of young children, one thing, there's two things that I find are probably extremely common mistakes. One of them is that it is not generally understood that a lack of discipline is not a happy thing for a child. Many people don't understand that. They think that to take off all restraints makes a child happier, and it does not. Have a few rules. Very, very few. Have as few no's as you can possibly have. But have a few. The ones that are very important to you, where you see a clear danger to the child, or something the child does and, it, and you can't handle it. Have a few rules, and make those as safe as a stairway. Make them as safe as a seatbelt. It's something that's immovable, as safe as a wall, as safe as the roof protects you from the hail. It is a no that the child can count on. Do not compromise with that no. Have it firm and soft and padded, but always there. The child can count on it. Children need a few limits. And it really doesn't matter so much what they are as long as they're fair and they come from your heart. Do away with many, as many no's as you can, but have a few. And the child will sense that you're there, that you can be relied on, that you know what you're doing. The second thing, and this diminishes as the child reaches adolescence, that's generally not understood, is that children feel loved when they are played with. So it's all right to look at your child and see what makes them happy. Don't ask, tell you. It is not a good thing to deny what a child thinks is just wonderful. Now, it is possible to reason out that we shouldn't have Christmas and we shouldn't give Christmas presents. And uh, birthdays only remind us of the fact that, that uh, we are a body and that we were born and that we're trying to rise above this perception that we're nothing but a body. And so a very well-meaning parent may come in and dampen down birthdays, not have the, the celebration that they, they would like to have, or to eliminate presents on Christmas or something like that, or not go to the amusement park because so many of the rides are based on excitement and fear and anxiety. <laughs> it is best not to eliminate something that a child thinks is just wonderful, that they feel loved. You see, the fact that you take them and you participate in the amusement park and so forth makes them feel loved. It just, don't try to make sense of that. It's just, I mean, just like your partner going to the meeting, you see, makes you feel loved. That makes no sense whatsoever. It's just as silly. Or if your partner also smokes, sign of true loyalty and togetherness. <laughs> We're all crazy, do you see? But we must look at how people, what people think of as love. And most people don't look directly at the child and see what lights up their face and makes their eyes twinkle. So be firm. 
and play with the child in the way the child wants to be played. Now, as soon as your sense of enjoyment has ended, don't continue playing because now there's going to be this sense of tension and the child will act out your sense of tension because the child is identifying with your mind more than theirs. So although you're continuing to play with them, suddenly the whole thing has gotten a little bit out of hand and ugly and so forth. That's because you're anxious. It's because you don't want to play anymore and the child's picking this up. See how simple it is. <laughs> a question concerning what can be said to someone who says they want to end their life and seems to be asking permission. It is, of course, all right for someone to kill themselves, but it's a mistake. And if you can do anything to, uh, I mean, it's, what I mean is we shouldn't condemn someone for having that thought. And many people do condemn someone bitterly because they have thought of killing themselves. And they will report this to other friends. And they will say how unworthy this is. And it is a mistake. And so you do wish to help them avoid this mistake if you can. You will not be able to avoid you will not be able to help everyone avoid this mistake. If you get into work in which you are uh, trying to prevent suicides, you are going to have a few people kill themselves. If you get into the healing profession and you're trying to make sick bodies well, you're going to have a few people who will hang on to their illness. I don't care how good a healer you are. So you don't make your goal <clears throat> stopping the suicide, but you make your goal a joining of hearts that will allow the person to skirt around this mistake. It is a, it is a feeling of love and togetherness and understanding that will put more hope and more strength into this individual than anything <clears throat> that you can say. So what you want to do is to become very, very silent in the face of this kind of thing. Not silent outwardly, but inwardly as still as you can possibly become. You want to freeze the whole situation in your stillness and in your peace. Trust your instincts at this time. Forget everything that you think you know about the subject of suicide and let something come from your heart. And what comes from your heart may be very surprising to you. Trust it, though. There's a sort of sense of gladness. There's almost a, uh, a little... It's, it's probably too much to say that there's a little laugh that, that happens inside you when you get an instinct from your higher self or from God. You... you it's, it's, there's a little joy attached to it. And you'll just feel this to talk about so-and-so. Don't worry if it seems to be irrelevant. Stay calm. Don't worry if they seem to react against it. But if they're reacting against it, you want to be silent again and be sure that you want to continue this. It may be that you don't want to continue this particular thing. Perhaps it's already had its effect. 
Is there anything else you wanted to ask about that? I know that's very general, but it must be general if you want to be of true help. There is no technique, and if you fall back on a technique, you're going to be anxious. So you do not want to have a plan. You do not want to decide ahead of time what someone needs. In stillness, you want to realize this is your brother and your sister. As best you can, put yourself in their place without destroying yourself, without condemning yourself and feeling all the world collapse upon you as they feel. But join with their hearts. Realize that this is that they're having a very, very rough time. This is a call for help. Get a sense of, of this being your true sister and your true brother. And then just wait. It's almost as if they tell you what to say to them. Or tell you what to act. And there's, so don't get into the, this, this flurry of activity in the mind which you're trying to read signs. This is very natural. And a good rule is, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. If you're afraid, don't talk. That's a good rule. Wait until there's a certain rightness and relief before you speak. Don't be afraid to follow up on the phone, you know, and call them and see how they're doing, if this seems natural. Trust your uh, intuition to call them, maybe even at maybe an odd time, at a time that doesn't seem to be appropriate, like just the time maybe they're sitting down dinner or at the time that they're at work or at the time maybe even at night when you suspect they may be asleep if you have a real peaceful sense there may be a connection there that you don't realize and that's just the time they need the call don't go looking for that kind of intuition don't go asking yourself and putting out some sort of antenna out there trying to figure out when you're supposed to call them that's ego nonsense but if suddenly you have, you, it's just like this sort of wave of goodwill comes over you and you feel like calling so-and-so, go ahead and call them. And if you get a busy signal or they don't answer, it does not mean that, that you, uh, you know, that it means that there was a reaching out of the heart. Now, this takes form in picking up the phone sometimes and calling an individual, but it was the fact that your heart reached out to them that blessed them, not the fact that they weren't there or their phone was busy. If your heart reached out to them, then it had its effect. It helped them at least a little bit. A question concerning situations in which it appears that seeking one's own personal peace is at the expense of someone else's happiness. Well, if you'll be very, very clear inside, if there's no anxiety when you make these decisions to do this particular thing two nights a week, or when you, when you decide to step away from a relationship, if you will be as clear as you can be, oftentimes the thing that is disturbing to another person will not have to be done. Now, there will be some things that will still have to be done that will seem to be disturbing and that will, that will be misunderstood. You cannot avoid that entirely. You are going to have people scream at you and you are going to have people misunderstand. But 
see if it's absolutely necessary to do this particular thing that seems to be ruffling someone else's feathers. Very often, it can be avoided. And since your goal is inner peace and love, then to have an unpleasant situation like that, of course, is a, at least a slight hindrance to your own sense of peace. So it is a good thing, of course, to, to do all that you can to make someone else comfortable. That doesn't mean you give in to their ego on every single occasion, but if you can avoid something that, that simply will be misunderstood, then that's a good thing. The general rule is take enough time to become clear. Clarity is another word for peace, just as simplicity is another word for peace. So take enough time to become very, very clear. The way to become clear is not to think about the situation. It isn't to analyze it and tear it apart or, or to uh, investigate it in some way. The way to become clear about a situation is to sit down and take it into your heart and look calmly at it. You just look at it and you look at your heart and you ask yourself, what do I want to do about this now? Don't ask yourself what eternal rule you want to make about this. That's ego nonsense. Ask yourself, what do I want to do about these two nights a week? This is disturbing so-and-so. I would like to reconsider this now. And you reconsider it formally. You don't reconsider it as you're going through the day. This is what the ego likes to do. It's constantly reconsidering everything. Oh, I shouldn't have turned that corner. I should have gone the other way. I know this isn't the way to go. I know that it's just traffic, traffic jam this time of day. It's constantly reconsidering. Never reconsider anything until you have a moment to reconsider it with your heart. Then you sit down. And deep in your heart, you ask, what would I like to do about this? Now, I would like to give you, you didn't think you could get an assignment on the question and answer day, did you? <laughs> I would like to give you all a little assignment in connection with this question. We've talked here a great deal about stillness, quieting the mind. I've suggested if you can do this even for a few seconds, that you go ahead now and begin practicing pure absent-mindedness, if you want to call it that, pure mental quietness. If you need some technique, such as watching, watching your thoughts or describing the things around you or saying some words of truth or mantra or breathing or something like that, then use that. If you can go ahead and practice a little stillness now, begin doing that. Now, here's the... Here's the uh, Assignment. Take a few minor decisions, as many as you notice, today and the next day, the next few days. And when you see that you're trying to decide something, I'm talking about something minor, something that it does not scare you to, to give to this assignment. For example, ordering something from a menu in a restaurant or that kind of thing. Become still and as best you can, don't think about it. Now here's what 
I want you to discover if you haven't already. Your mental processes have nothing to do with what you decide. It is an aftermath. It is an echo. The mind echoes the decision that's already made. And if you begin listening to the echo and the reverberations within the mind, then you can counteract the real decision and make a little mistake. No mistakes are, are uh, ultimately important. But you can make a mistake if you start listening to the reverberations, which is all the thinking about the decision. So say to yourself something like this. There is nothing to decide. I already know what to do. Now don't try to get some mystical sign or uh, some tingling in your nose or uh, something. Some chorus from heaven saying, Choose the pork chop. <laughs> you see, I didn't think they ate pork. <laughs> now, what you do is you just become still. There's nothing weird about this. You become still. You act as if the truth is true. You act as if you already know what to do. And you will find yourself acting out of the stillness. I'm not saying not act. I'm saying from the stillness, the complete stillness, you will feel this gentle preference. Don't word it to yourself. Just act. This will scare your ego that, it can, that decisions can be made so effortlessly. Does everybody understand that assignment? Take little decisions. When you see that you have a little decision, you're trying to decide something very small, unscary, become completely quiet and don't think about it. Don't decide it in the sense of making up your mind. Assume that the decision is already made and then act on it. And if the pork chop comes and it's the worst thing on the menu and everybody else has gotten the really good stuff, this means nothing. You see, there is no reward in the world for a spiritual path. And the belief that there is, is the number one hindrance to spiritual growth. To think that somehow we should be rewarded in the world for our efforts, spiritual efforts. It will not happen. It will seem to happen at one moment and not the next, and you won't be able to figure that thing out because it isn't actually happening. If it were actually happening, it would happen every single time, and you wouldn't have to make up little rules of exception as to why it's not happening on this particular occasion. A question concerning the idea in A Course in Miracles that nobody can be hurt. Nobody can be hurt. Well, it's, it's actually the same question that was asked at the beginning of the service. It's just in another sense. At night, when you have a dream, you indeed appear to be hurt in a thousand different ways. If you've ever awakened in the middle of a dream and looked over the dream, it hurts you in a number of ways. 
there was some frustration. There was some incompletion. Or maybe there was some crying out. But in little nagging ways, at least, the dream hurt you. But when you awakened, you were no longer hurt, and you actually realized that you were not truly hurt even during the dream. Awakening means that our mind lifts from this level of experience. It begins to lift gradually, like one of those lovely uh, hot air balloons with all the colors. It just very gently begins to lift. And at the stage that some of you may be at this moment, you don't know what is true. You're beginning to see the truth of the truth. You're beginning to realize that love actually exists, that God is actually with you. You're beginning to suspect that all of this is indeed a dream, as all the teachings of truth say, even uh, Genesis says. You're beginning to suspect that, but right now both seem to be true, and it's as if you're torn between both of them. There is no way to see in any absolute sense that you cannot be hurt because you do not believe that and your belief constitutes your experience at this time. But there will be liftings of the shroud in which you know that you're not hurt and that everything is going to turn out all right. And then there will be this general lifting of the shroud that takes place where the truth becomes more true in the dream. And the promise that has been given you throughout the ages is that there will come a time in which you will see that you and no one else were truly hurt. But you cannot force yourself to see that now, and it is indeed a mistake to tell anyone in pain a sentiment like that. It is of no help to tell someone that they're not actually being hurt because they, they do feel emotional and physical pain. And that to them is being hurt. And they can feel a tremendous amount of it and for a very long time. So I would not dwell on these statements too much, these very absolute statements, such as you can't be hurt, or the statement that God is not aware <coughs> of this slaughterhouse. That's not understandable. People think they're deserted when they hear a thing like that. What do you mean God isn't aware of this? Well, literally, strictly speaking, that's true. But A Course in Miracles also states things on another level, such as God weeps for you. Because those statements of truth, when said in terms of human language, sound so cold and heartless, and they're so misunderstood. So don't spend any time worrying about certain fine points of truth and philosophy. <coughs> Just do what you know to do, and you will begin to see that you aren't hurt. The hurt will leave you more and more quickly 
someone will say something to you, and instead of your feelings being hurt, it will pass away so quickly. And the more quickly it passes, the more you realize you were not actually hurt. So let this perception come gradually, happily, and easily. A question concerning how reliable are personal experiences as a guide for behavior. Uh, they're very uh, reliable uh, if you will look at the content and not the form. So the mistake that the ego makes is to see what worked outwardly. So it goes back and it sees some outward behavior and it says, ah, things turned out the way I wanted to when I acted in such and such a way. That is not reliable, as we all know. We can never duplicate it. And we keep trying to and, and we think, well, I didn't get it quite right. There's some other behavior that's actually the key to this. And of course, it's not behavior at all. But if your experience is going back and seeing what happened when you were peaceful and noticing that when you were peaceful, you were peaceful and nothing else. It's not that the car didn't go off the road. It's not that, the, uh, that you didn't have to walk to the filling station and get gas. It isn't any of those things. It isn't that they didn't bounce your check or whatever the thing may be. It's that you were peaceful and you could laugh at the whole thing. There's a wonderful series of books uh, written by James Harriet. Uh, all things bright and beautiful, all things great, all creatures uh, great and small, all things, uh, what's the third one? Wise and wonderful. And then the fourth one, the Lord God made them all. Here is, a, here is a man that's talking about the very kind of thing that we're talking about this morning. And that is, he goes back and, re, and, and reviews the most terrible disasters that happened. But you can see a laughter in the whole thing. You know, you can see lessons of love and you can see uh, true compassion growing out of, out of it. This is what it means to, uh, to learn. We learn that the peace of God is all we need and all we want, that nothing else matters. We aren't learning the peace of God in order to manipulate the world and to give us a happy ego life. It will not make you happy to be a teacher of God in an ego sense. It will not make your life run more smoothly in an ego sense. And yet, as there is more and more peace in your heart, there will be a certain sense of a falling into place. And there will be a simplicity that will cover everything. And you will begin to form friendships that truly satisfy you. And you will begin to do a work that you love doing and not dread going to. But this will be an aftermath, as we've said so many times. You will look back and suddenly, ah, I don't have that problem anymore. Put the peace of God before you. Don't try to change anything in this world. Put the peace of God before you. Try to find a way to bring it into every activity, into every thought. And practice, above all, a stillness, a deep quietness, and a happiness to be where you are 
and with whomever you are.